welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. And I believe this might actually be the 100th episode. So pretty exciting there. Uh, no no crazy celebration or anything. But uh, I'm your host, Devin Becker. And of course, joining me are wonderful panelists, as always, uh, especially starting with the, the ever-lively Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik here. We've got Sebastian Park, co-founder of Infinite Canvas, and Dave Elton, president of Blue Lens Studios. Uh, want to ask how you guys are doing, especially Aaron, uh, who is looking a little thinner on the face today. I... I did shave after, you know, too long being siloed away at my desk and went out for for a haircut. So that is that is true. But more important than that, we made it to 100 episodes of these roundtables. And I'm super, super excited about that. And, you know, kind of throughout the past, I guess, about two years of doing this now, which is crazy. Um, you know, I'm super fortunate for the awesome the awesome team and community that we've we've built around it. So very happy about that today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely exciting. So I mean, let's make it a good one. We've got like a lot of great topics to cover here, uh, especially us trying to get to uh, the Apple Vision Pro stuff this time around. We've also got uh, the FTC filing an injunction in the ever-growing saga of Microsoft Activision. Uh, Embracer restructuring could be interesting. Uh, the old not E3 week in terms of uh, a lot of announcements uh, around games. And then a uh, Reddit blackout should be a pretty spicy topic, uh, you know, controversial, I imagine. Uh, but let's let's just start off talking about what, what the whole not E3 week is and, and what that uh, comes down to. Yeah, and I love that <laughs> this is just being known as not E3 now. That just cracks me up. But uh, anyways, uh, this past week, a bunch of companies had their gaming showcases independently and displayed a bunch of new and and anticipated games. There was Summer Games Fest, the Xbox Showcase, Ubisoft Showcase, Capcom Showcase, and maybe one or two others that I just missed. I missed all the, the noise that's been, been going on and the flurry of announcements. Um, of course, it didn't, in my opinion at least, have nearly the same energy as camaraderie as E3, but there was still some, some, some fun stuff shown. And if I put my business hat aside and put my gamer hat on, uh, I'm, I'm so excited, but absolutely drowning and seemingly great games to play right now, which really is a great problem to have. And I, if I look at my backlog, I cry, but... When I look at, you know, some of the games that were, were showed, like Starfield is coming together or Alan Wake 2 seems pretty cool or honestly, like Assassin's Creed Mirage or Dragon's Dogma 2, like so many more games to add to the backlog um, in, in some kind of way it just has me really excited. Um, but also, if I put my business hat on, I think that um, Xbox put on a relatively good show that kind of eased some concerns ar- around um, the lineup of AAA games that they're going to have for for Game Pass. But of course, we'll still have to see how they execute on that in the months and quarters ahead. Uh, But honestly, the company that outperformed my expectations the most was Ubisoft. Um, 
Obviously, that's a company that we've covered a lot in the past, and we've chronicled some of their struggles to meet expectations over the past couple of years through um, live ops difficulties or mobile challenges or um, just needing to, to focus and get lean in, in some ways. But based on what we saw, at least I feel better about the company's lineup um, than I have in quite some time. And so I think Assassin's Creed is in good shape. They had a, a game... Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown, which is more of like a 2D platformer that that looks really sharp and, and pretty cool um, and was something I didn't expect. I have a feeling people are underestimating the power of the Avatar brand <laughs> right now when it comes to whatever their Avatar game is going to be. And we'll see how that really shakes up. But really, the biggest surprise there was um, Star Wars Outlaws, which um, I was not expecting at all. And it kind of looks like a Starfield-esque game that takes place in Star Wars. And it looked, uh, obviously it's very early, um, but it looked pretty good for, for a first showing at least. And so, um, you know, even though we've been pretty critical of Ubisoft and obviously there's a lot that needs to come together here, I think, I'll just throw it out there. I think there's a chance the company is bottom now, just kind of due to what's coming on the, the horizon for them. And so I want, to, I want to throw that out there. We'll see. Uh, and maybe you guys disagree with me, but... Um, those were some of some of my highlights, but I'm curious what what all of you thought, both both as a gamer and as business people, what what excited you or not about not E3 week? Uh, let me I'll chime chime in a little bit on the on the Ubisoft side of things, um, and I definitely will. I think I'm going to start off with, with their Star Wars title. Um, I was really happy to see that. You know, I, I thought it, you know, I agree. I think it looks good. I think that it's also nice that it's a game from a, a different perspective, a different type of character. Like, uh, you know, I very much appreciate what EA's done with their Jedi titles most recently. Um, but, you know, this is, you're not playing a Jedi, which is awesome. Um, and I think that really does give you an opportunity to try out, you know, some different experiences inside the Star Wars universe. Uh, and see some of those things, you know, like Han Solo certainly is a fan favorite for a lot of people. And, you know, being able to play that type of rogue character, I think is something that's going to be a lot of fun or something I'm looking forward to. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, we, we've seen what, um, you know, a really strong property like Star Wars tied with a game that's really well polished and put together, you know, what that can mean. Um, and yeah, I think, I think they they can do really really well with that if they if they do get the opportunity to put that polish into the game. Yeah, I I, I echo a lot of the sentiments around the the sheer amount of content coming out of it. It's it's sort of amusing to me because you don't really see other entertainment media conglomerates doing large talks outside maybe Disney and their Star Wars thing, and that seems overwhelming too. I think this harkens back to something we've talked about a couple times on this podcast, which is. Are you really competing against each other? Are you competing with yourself? Are you competing with the general media breakout? I looked this up prior to this podcast where I was looking at things that are coming out on Netflix, just like Netflix by itself, not any of the other platforms this month. And it's like Black Mirror Season 6, Blood of Z Season 2, Breakpoint 2, Bridgerton Seasons 3 and 4, Buying Beverly Hills Season 2, Bridesmaids 2011 is coming back out. There's a bunch of One Piece coming back out. So the question always I have is, hey, as these games come out, like, are they competing with the next season of Black Mirror, are they competing against themselves? And it is going to be interesting to see. I think historically, when we had E3 proper, 
because of sort of the constrained nature of the space, you had fewer announcements by all of these big brands. And sort of really interesting to see all of them take a more Nintendo-esque approach of, hey, here's our litany of things. You guys all love it. It'll be fine. Let's move on. And so that's going to be really fun. What I was sort of sad to see, not like not sad in an unexpected way, but they sad from a consumer perspective, was I was hoping to see a big IP announcement beyond the Starfields of the world, like something, something that's like new that we hadn't heard of that's been under wraps. That doesn't seem to be in the cards right now. That's totally fine. We'll, we'll hopefully see something else in the next year or the year after. Uh, I think that is one of the advantages of moving away from uh, like an E3 in that you have that opportunity to control the messaging. And when you do have that announcement, you can time it for a period when, you know, the decks are clear, like you're not competing against other noise of other announcements and that. So I, I think from a, um, you know, from a consumer side, it's a little bit more challenging. You have to pay attention all throughout the year instead of getting just a whole whack of really fun stuff, you know, all in one show. Um, but it does, you know, from a, from a company messaging perspective does give you that ability to have, um, you know, the stage all to yourself. You don't have to compete against, you know, is Microsoft releasing a new piece of hardware? Is Nintendo announcing, you know, the the next Zelda or Mario, whatever? Um, you know that you, you're able to control your messaging. So I think from a business perspective, that um, I think that certainly works in favor for the companies being able to piecemeal that out a little bit more. Cool. Well, it sounds like it, it's been working out for them. I, I don't think they're they're missing E3 at this point. Uh, I mean, unfortunate for the E3 organizers, but I mean, I also I, I benefited a little bit myself from uh, from being able to be part of uh, 3XP that kind of stole a bit uh, of I think the thunder in LA uh, from uh, E3 as well. So it's it's interesting to see that you know, that the energy kind of dispersed into something else. Uh, but I mean, hopefully all those games come out on time and like it was a big you know happy announcement for everyone as as Aaron seems pretty enthused. Uh, by by what we are able to see, so hopefully all those like come out on time. We're not really disappointed by any of those titles because we have seen a lot of titles lately kind of come out and not really hit the mark in terms of like being finished and things like that. So uh, like let's let's hope that, like we used to have that kind of E three like sort of faking it thing that we had, and and maybe because they're in a little more control of these situations and stuff like that, maybe we'll get a little less of the faking and more of the like this is really what we have coming. Uh, maybe some of these are farther out, but we're like we're we're going to be doing it and. No worries there, hopefully. Yeah. Or maybe even more faking it because they do have that full there control that, yeah. over everything. No, I'm sure um, everything that happened in the Devolver presentation was fully real. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in terms of uh, maybe releasing less games instead of more games, uh, we've got Embracer kind of going the other way of how they've been going recently. Absolutely. So uh, Embracer... Um, just earlier this week, put out an announcement saying that they're going to be going through a restructuring program. Um, and in an open letter to uh, to the company and to, to everyone around the world, they talked about how they needed to get basically their financials under control. So they're looking at reducing their net debt. They're looking at reducing their overhead. Um, and the unfortunate part of that means that there's going to be a reduction in the number of people at the company. There's going to be some closures, both of studios and uh, canceling of some projects. So, I mean, they've been going through a bit of an interesting time over the last little while. There was the, um, you know, if you look back to November of last year, at that point, they already recognized that there were some challenges with their business and they needed to go through um, you know, a special review of their overall business as compared to where the market is. Um, 
And then last month, their mysterious reveal of, hey, we had a $2 billion deal, but it went away. And uh, now it's a question of, well, who was that partner that they were supposedly partnering with? You know, trying to get any information or speculation around that's been a bit of a challenge. But, um, you know, they they really do need to take a look at as they've been buying a large number of companies and allowed them to operate as individual entities, you know, where are they able to get some economies of scale? So, um, you know, take a look at being able to centralize some of their services. Uh, Whereas originally they had, you know, stated that when people or companies were purchased, that they were going to be able to continue to operate as their own individual entities. Um, they definitely will be looking at centralizing a lot more of their items and uh, they're going to be cutting their costs in terms of where their external spends are and look at, you know, trying to bring everything internally. So um, they've apparently have approximately 17,000 employees. Um, You know, how much of a cut that means, we're not sure. Um, Unfortunately, that's something that will be playing out uh, over the course of, uh, the next nine months or so sounds like they want to have everything wrapped up by March of next year. So um, some unfortunate news uh, inside the industry that's uh, already seen a number of uh, layoffs and, and hits to, to teams and projects. It is sad news, um, but also is sorely needed in Embracer's case. And I would argue it's it's coming late. And <laughs> this is probably something that they should have been thinking about earlier. The last time we talked about Embracer, which was in the earnings report, right when that two billion dollar deal fell apart, I sort of made the case that, like, yeah, obviously losing two billion and and potential revenue is bad, but don't miss the forest for the trees because the bigger story here is that if you look at the past five years, uh, I think it was roughly five years, like right before the the M and A craze picked up, and zoom forward to today. Embracer has grown their revenue one hundred and fifty x, but their stock is now where it was before that started. And doing that math made my face melt <laughs> because uh, because that's crazy, right? And so there obviously has been um, you know, some mismanagement when it's come to understanding the levers that create value inside um, this company. And I think very clearly, like refocusing, finding ways to get leaner where it matters and just setting a higher bar internally for what projects matter and where your ROI is going to come from, um, that should make a big difference. I'm I'm a little sad that it's really only starting to pick up now because that's the kind of thing that like while you're going through the process of making these big deals and tucking them in and figuring out how to reinvest across everything, um, you should be figuring that out as you go instead of just looking for the next deal. Um, so. I'm not positive of um, how <laughs> how this will really end up in terms of like really being able to create long term value and create some type of like real strategy and game plan um, a- around this company to to refocus and you know just say outperform the market or anything from here. Uh, I think they have a lot of doubters to to prove wrong at this stage, but it is sorely sorely needed. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that in terms from a, from a business perspective. And they do recognize that, you know, what they're needing to do is really focus on cutting out the the games that either have um, a lack of focus, a lack of real, you know, knockout hit potential or, or games that aren't tracking very well. 
if you look at some of their estimates, they're looking at reducing their debt and their overhead by a fairly significant uh, amount. Yet at the same time, they're suggesting that their revenue will not decrease by a huge amount. So it does look like that they're thinking that uh, they're really cutting out all of the the weak projects. Um, and I really do hope that they are able to get to that uh, the benefit of scale. Like, you know, they they are they do have a lot of smart people that they've brought on board through their um, through their acquisitions over the years, uh, and I do think that they can get to the point where if you're able to concentrate all of that talent uh, rather than having that spread apart, you know, actually take advantage of if you've got really good people around marketing, share that across the entire company. Don't have that, you know, with just in the inside the division. If you have really talented people about, you know, what does it take to, to build a product and, and really find what it is that the players are going to latch on to and, and make that, you know, that chance of heading, having that breakout success uh, hit, spread that across the company. Don't keep it inside of, inside of a division. So I really do hope that, that that idea of centralization, you know, having a 100% centralized certainly is a challenge. Um, you're not necessarily building every game for every place in the world. For every market, you know, it's not just one global, um, uh, you know, group of players. Um, but you know, there is certainly a lot of elements that can be centralized, and certainly find some economies of scale there and, and share the knowledge. Is in a, I think probably in a much more efficient, and better manner. I just don't buy the argument that they that embracing necessarily can change. Uh, if you think about their core business, their business that was built on the principle of rolling things up. They have 750 plus brands. They are a Swedish company trying to operate a multinational organization. It's just really hard for them to change course. And then this is something that you, Dave, everyone on this call have dealt with. And I don't, I just like don't buy that they will change in that way. Like it seems not only hard, but seems counter to their ecosystem. One of the things that we talk about a lot with both new startups, but also existing companies is, you know, sometimes your bet's just wrong. And that's totally fine. It does just happen that way. Interest rates have gone up. They're not going to come cratering down as some people think they are because that's just not how a good fiscal policy ends up working out. So there might be something to be saved here, but a lot of those games are going to die, right? And, and their D730s or whatever are going to have the same issue where they might be off by 5 to 10% and you won't know until 18 months in. And that's going to cause all sorts of other issues for them as well. I think overall, Embracer is in a really interesting spot as a result of that. But certainly, trying to change the culture of how the company operates is going to be really difficult. Versus, you know, really just doubling down and and if this and if you have a true belief in the thesis, like be a little bit contrarian to the market and hope for the best. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see some of the management changes that they they brought about. So the the head of uh, Saber uh, is uh, was promoted up to the CEO of uh, Embracer overall. Um, and so got to wonder, is it a case of, are they taking more of a traditional, uh, approach to managing game teams and then bringing, elevating that up, you know, uh, in, in reference to your comment about, can they change their, their culture? Um, you know, if they're able to bring people up to that senior level to, to help look at changing that culture a little bit, but, um, yeah, I mean, they, They've got a lot of mouths to feed. It is a big ship to turn. Um, and-, and by the way, like I think the other thing that we should all just reflect on is, are they worth 
what what's the what's their current market cap right now? Like it's something the ballpark of three billion U.S. dollars. I want to say. Yeah, like, something like that. Is that a like one of the things that we we talk about, especially when we talk to new traders? Is like, hey, like ignore where they were and think about like what they're worth today. And is a company that does a few hundred million dollars in revenue and occasionally turns a profit, although it did not turn profit last year, but has been turning profits in the quarters recently. Is that type of company worth this market cap? It might honestly just be yes. <laughs> like honestly, like it. This seems like the right multiple for them. And if that's the case, then that's. Mazel tov. Like we we go from here and we 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 talk about the good old days when we were all worth you know ten times more. I think that's right. Um, I I think the market is probably pretty smart right now in, in sizing the company up and has hesitations about where where this could go because a company with this many employees, this many games, should be worth more than than what it is trading at. And so that skepticism is priced in. But I think I agree with you, Seb, that. The, this kind of change across so many people and so many subsidiaries is really hard to, to pull off culturally because when you start in, in a way that decentralizes operations and decision-making and, and sort of like empowers entrepreneurs in some way who get acquired and get tucked into the Embracer family and what is centralized is more capital allocation, um, Moving moving operations from a decentralized <laughs> to a centralized, uh, you know, lens in in some way, while management kind of has dropped the ball on what its primary responsibility was, um, I think that is going to raise a lot of questions and concerns, and probably will shake up not even just leadership at the top, but. Uh, perhaps <laughs> all the way down in terms of who's okay with like the the direction of like how decisions are made in these individual subsidiaries and like what games are greenlit that maybe wouldn't have been an issue in the past but are going to in the future and how projects are staffed and budgeted around. I think there's just going to be like cans of worms that kind of open up when you really get into the weeds. And yeah, across so many companies, it's hard to to pull off. Not to belabor the point, but this is the biggest fear. Right. And I think it's the bigger fear everyone should have, which is this isn't an embracer problem. Like I think it's easy for us to say, hey, embracers oh, yeah. are the ones who messed this up. This might just be that this style of game acquisition or this style of roll-ups just don't work for video games. And if that's the case, I think that's a thing that I see a lot in the market right now where people really are trying to find any opportunity to shit on Embracer as much as possible. Not that anyone on this call is doing it, but people want to do that in part because the alternative reality could be that, oh, actually, this model doesn't work. If this model doesn't work, there's a lot of studios that are going to be screwed in about two to five years. 100%. And the lessons here are actually less about games, in my opinion. Like this, It's like this entire roll-up model in general that you see across industries that very rarely works out. It does occasionally with um, CEOs in particular who are just really savvy with capital allocation and it set really high bars for what they acquire or have like very set principles and processes for how um, companies get tucked in either completely decentralized or in a more private equity um, kind of way. Um, But the vast majority of those companies across all industries really struggle to pull it off and have to change in, in, in some way. And some of them, you know, do end up with a collection of businesses that are sound they eventually divest and refocus on what matters most. Um, um, and so there totally is a path 
through here. And it'll just be interesting to 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 see what that is. But yeah, shouldn't belabor the point too much on just Embracer, even though that's kind of the story of now. This really is just like <laughs> a general business lessons learned that are timeless, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you can look at the one of the indicators and something that has been brought up recently across not just Embracer, but still front and others is what does that organic growth look like? You know, so many of the companies have been growing through acquisition. Okay, now you've got the people there. Are you actually able to create new games, new business inside what you have? Uh, and with the money's, you know, money situation where it is now, acquisitions are going to decrease. They're not going to stop entirely, but they're certainly going to not be at the same speed as before. So the their growth really is going to have to come from from internal, from organic, uh, organic growth. Well, we we wish them the best, and, and hopefully uh, we don't lose some good studios in the process. But honestly, knowing how the game industry is, if we do, they'll just start up a new a new game company, right? We'll we'll potentially see at least one new game company out of this whole thing, uh, whatever layoffs happen, stuff like that. Just that's the nature of of games is everyone tends to respawn after they die from from these kinds of things. So I'm ho- I'm not too worried about it, at least in terms of uh, the long term. But definitely hope. Uh, in the short term, people aren't, aren't losing uh, too much sleep over it. But in terms of uh, the, an acquisition not happening so much uh, yet, we've got Microsoft's endless endless story. Uh, it's, it's rivaling the Lord of the Rings at this point, uh, getting blocked <laughs> by FTC. Yeah, there's a lot of lore to the story being built that is creating an entire franchise of its own. That is for sure. Um, but... We don't have to talk about this for long today, but the the newest episode in this saga is that um, technically the deadline for this deal to go through um, is July 18th, which is 18 months after the deal was announced and is whatever is in the contract between Microsoft and Activision. And those companies are obviously moving fast and pushing hard for this deal to close in time. And with the EU now having approved the deal, the team <laughs> seemingly thinking it can close regardless of what the CMA thinks. Um, and uh, now it's just really up to the to the US to kind of put in its final word and uh, approve the deal or not. And so in knowing that Microsoft can move fast and actually close the deal soon if it wants to, especially if it feels good about its chances in court, um, the FTC stepped in to file essentially a restraining order to keep the deal from closing um, until it goes to court and they can make their case. And a judge in the U.S. Um, approved of that. So, you know, just so many random inner workings of the legal system that I'm learning about through through watching watching this deal try to close. Um, but anyways, it sounds bad because the FTC continues to fight and wants to make sure that they're their case against the deal is heard before any any chance of closing happenings. But on the other hand, you know what what people are saying at least is that it speeds up the 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 court process and actually a decision getting made, which I think is right. And so in a few weeks, and this in the next few weeks, like in June, this is finally going to court, and the U.S. judicial system is essentially going to decide if the FTC's concerns are valid or not. We've talked about this at length. They're probably not valid, but who knows what any decision maker in the government is going to like finally rule. So I'm not even going to speculate at this point. Um, but with the, the hearings in June, the decision should be made in, in July. 
And so that's at least how I read it. It's finally, hopefully, coming to a close. Um, the more interesting thing here is that <laughs> Microsoft and Activision are just kind of given the the shrug to, to the CMA um, in the UK. And um, it makes a lot of sense. Like the UK is punching above its weight in terms of its its global global impact and antitrust legislation. Um, but it is, and I don't know how that's is going to, to fall in the end. But you know, if they decide to close the deal without the CMA's blessings, we'll we'll see what happens. It there's a range of possibilities ranging from <laughs> the the CMA just wanting the penalty to be like, all right, you just with cloud gaming, you can't operate as you were or as you wanted to, or it could range all the way to well, Microsoft as a, a whole in your entire parent company, this has big repercussions. And we're going to fine you a lot of money or keep you from operating in bigger ways that we don't like. I don't know. Um, but Anyways, I just thought that the random UK aside is funny, um, and we shouldn't speculate. The saga goes on, but hopefully this time in a month, we'll be done with this, and we can just start talking about, great, the deal went through, what does it mean? Or, oh, uh-oh, it didn't happen. What does this mean for you know Xboxes and Activision's future with actual clarity? But that's the update. I'm just looking forward to the Netflix film about this whole saga. I was thinking the same thing. It'll, it'll be like Tiger King, but for, for the whole yeah. court drama here around this. <laughs> yeah, or if you just have a documentary, please invite me so that I can vent on your, your program about <laughs> right. having to talk about this on a podcast every freaking week and growing super tired of it. Um, please. Definitely. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll we'll get that over with. And I mean, who knows? Maybe once they get it approved and actually start doing the merger, we end up with a whole set of other dramas because those are two very large companies uh, with I, I got to imagine different cultures and other things going on that could be its own set of secondary drama. But uh, hopefully, at least we'll get to that part. We'll get to part two of the story, and it'll be a little more interesting for a while uh, as as we continue to cover it. <laughs> at this point, I feel like a twenty four hour news network. This kind of story. But uh, we've got a little bit more of a, of a different change of topic, something a little more on the financial side, just going into uh, hurdle rates and startups. Yeah. So one of the fun things that we're seeing right now, especially in the analysis we talk about up and down, it's just what does it mean to have a business actually be valuable to be invested into? And part of that right now is that historically for the last 10 years, people build up these heuristics where it's like, oh... It has to make a return. It has to beat the S&P 500. It has to beat some level of return. But what's weird is that we're no longer in a 0% interest rate environment. And one of the cool things about that is that the actual hurdle rate is often risk-free U.S. treasuries. Like the U.S. is not defaulting anymore. And one of the cool things about that is that you can literally just put your money into a U.S. treasury bond and they'll just pay you 5% risk-free. And that risk adjustment is really fun because it changes the acceptable rate of return. It changes the hurdle rates. Love to love that Aaron's on this call to talk to him about it. But effectively, the, the question that we see both in venture, but also in analysis of some of these bigger companies like Embracer is, hey, if you deploy $100 million into new companies, it's not good enough if you make $20 million. It may not be good enough if you make $100 million. Like 20% return is certainly not enough to hurdle 5% risk-free. But it's 100%, given the risk premium you're taking, it may not be there. And so we're starting to see this really play. My favorite example is from a world we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast in a while, which is there are crypto companies that are saying, hey, we will give you 5% yield on us, you buying the token. 
but the token inflates at 10%. And the US dollar is also going to do risk-free 5% return. Suddenly, those claims that were all the rage two years ago are just dumb. Like If you're doing that, you just should not deploy money. You should talk to someone. And it makes for some really hard bits here. And especially because, as you probably saw, the, the consumer price index didn't go up as highly or went down even this year, uh, this past quarter. We're going to see a slowing of inflation, but that doesn't mean that we're going to see interest rates come down to 0% anytime soon. It's going to probably stay where it's at for a long period of time for a variety of fiscal policy reasons and come down slower because there's also other implications if you reduce interest rates really quickly. So that's really the point. Should we now as investors, as people who are deploying money into gaming, as people who are gaming uh, observers, change our heuristics? Because this is the environment we're going to be in for a while. And people strongly disagree. <laughs> and they're pretty polarizing in terms of this topic. Thoughts, Aaron? Yeah, I can I can kickstart this. So my my take is that I usually think a lot of the conversation around hurdle rates is sort of misguided or kind of stuck in theory and not actually all that helpful most of the time. Um, and so uh, I guess a couple angles here. First, when many people think about hurdle rates, um, they often think about it like in conjunction with the so-called equity risk premium. And this is getting like boring finance for for a moment. But what that basically means, and to, to kind of summarize what 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 Seb was piecing together is that what's the gap between your expected equity returns and just the risk-free rate of return? And the higher that the risk-free rate is, the technically like you the the gap of the equity risk premium um uh you know shrinks and you have to kind of think harder about like what you invest in as an equity investor. Um, but I don't actually think that really works in practice too well, like leveraging that type of framework or tool. Um, and obviously for like non-equities, like bonds or whatever has like yields, typically like you can compare rates more easily. But I don't think we have seen like awesome sustainable yields elsewhere that really have pushed most smart investors to like really think about taking like longer term yields versus um, kind of sticking with their overall game plan with equities or whatever. Um, but I also think just like on the flip side that when rates fall and technically like that's the time when people think that the equity, like their hurdle rates are lower because rates are lower. That's actually probably backwards <laughs> because that's the time that valuations in equities are often the highest. Um, um, and so my my take is that like inflation ebbs and flows, interest rates ebb and flow, valuations ebb and flow. Really, the mo- the best thing that you can do as an investor is like when you are looking at investments to always in whatever economic period that you're in to sort of set on an unreasonably high <laughs> hurdle rate for yourself, just because it forces you to become pickier and like do your extra diligence and like think extra hard about like what how value is created and like what levers are at play to increase this price and this value of whatever you're looking at um over a longer period of time and um often what that really means is just like having a pulse on too on just like 
the hype cycle and um, just like knowing when to lean in and out of certain zones instead of just like the so-called market as as a whole, you know, whether it's, you know, we've seen bubbles in crypto, bubbles in, in tech, um, bubbles in the finance industry, et cetera. And sometimes it's just like worth knowing when to lean in and out. But if you set like a high enough hurdle rate for yourself, you're probably going to be more resistant to FOMO and just kind of chasing what naturally will have higher, uh, will have lower rates of return, even though a lot of people think it is higher, maybe like an AI right now. Um, but it'll also probably mean that when you see things that you are excited about, you're more likely to be right when you decide to to lean in. So I don't know if that really even addresses what you're you're getting at, um, Seb, but that's just kind of like my my rant on hurdle rates. And I've just, as an investor in the past, I've always struggled having this conversation because whenever someone sets a hurdle rate, I'm like, okay, but I'm not sure it really matters because you can't really predict what's going to happen with rates, with market valuations. And at the end of the day, you just have to set a high bar for yourself and stick to your principles throughout it, throughout it all. And if you do that, that'll increase your odds of outperforming and doing well in the long run. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the I think that's a great primer for the actual conversation, which is do games in general meet that hurdle rate for anyone, right? And I think it's one of the fun things here where games, I think, especially with what when we talk about Embracer and some other people, people assumed that if we just took enough shots on goal, that we could reduce the risk of investing into games, even though we know inherently that the vast majority of all games you make. 99.9% of all games made fail, right? Like it's it's one of the like ridiculous things where even a, let's take an example of someone who I think is one of the best uh, creators of mobile games in the world right now, which is King. If you think about King and their last four games launched, which are like the Crash Bandicoot game, the Knighthood game, the Pet Rescue game, all of this continued, right? Within a year or two. If you take like if you go back like a ten years time um, time span and you just remove some like it's more than sixty percent of the stuff that they've launched has gone poorly, and that's been that was totally fine when capital allocation was pretty cheap and cost of capital is cheap. But is it still the case that we can do these types of things today, or are we going to move more into hey we need a much we need to make sure we have Star Wars engaged into our game? Do we need to like somehow reduce the risk profile in some way or the other? One of the things that we talked about at the not E3 week is that, hey, we don't see as much new IP. That might just be if people have come to the conclusion that we don't have enough distribution for these games unless we have an IP strategy, we're not going to see new games for a really long time. And I think that is what makes this hurdle rate conversation so interesting because some people are like, no, we're already all in. The next 10 years, it'll all get better. So let's just continue to deploy and fund games because they're going to do super well. It might just be that we should have never done that, right? That could have been the answer that like the hurdle rate was never high enough five years ago. It's not high enough today. Or is it the flip side that actually, no, the, the, the understanding of the heuristics we built in 2018 are still applicable five years later. And I think that's like the open question that I don't have a good answer for, to be honest with you. I, I think about this a lot and it's something that I just wanted to bring up because you're a smart guy, Aaron. You, you might have the answer. Uh, I don't have the answer, but I mean, listening to what you're saying, my my thoughts coming back are like, it's so stage dependent and it's so like company context dependent on like what you view as your set of opportunities and what is an acceptable rate of return or even beyond rate of return, like what kind of risk you're willing to take or how big of a success you need to 
drive return for your entity as a whole. Obviously, if you're more of an early stage investor, you probably can think less about hurdle rates as a whole because your outcomes are so binary. And what matters most is just getting into a small handful of of deals that can find success to some threshold and um and and go from there and you'll be fine. But of course, if you're an Activision Blizzard with King inside of it, um you're thinking with an entirely different set of principles. That's less about like, okay, can you spin up a new franchise? Although debatably maybe they could do that and and find some success beyond even just mobile. But where you have seen the rate of return shift is a kind of shift away from from that to just building up these mega IP ecosystems. <laughs> and that's sort of the meta of where the return has kind of shifted in the past few few years. But even if you zoom back to the earlier days of King, Activision, despite King kind of failing to spin up lots of new games, Activision still got a good rate of return and absolutely met its hurdle rates because of Candy Crush alone and the kind of the low price that they paid for King just on a multiples basis versus how Candy Crush has been able to sustain super high levels of cash generation over a long period of time. So part of it just depends on <laughs> like what price you get in at and therefore what you expect, um, which has been changing a lot lately across the industry. And part of it too is just where you're coming from, I think, to even determine what level of impact you need and therefore how you think about hurdle rates with given given projects. But I'm curious, Dave, what you think from being like inside the machine and you know building building games and making some of these decisions. Uh, well, first off, I just if it was entirely about uh, shots on goal, then I think Embracer actually is the king is in you know in a prime position for that, just given the number of products they have inside the pipeline. Um, I mean, game companies have gone through this before, where they had to do a really hard evaluation in terms of how many shots on goal they were taking. Uh, if you look, you know, famously back at EA and Activision. You know, they used to ship a lot more games every year and they just went, you know what, it's actually better for us to take uh, a much more focused uh, shot on gold, you know, something that has the opportunity to have that 5 million unit seller versus something that is just going to be, you know, like half a million. Um, you know, the, the way that I kind of look at it is, um, well, two things in part, it really depends on the company and the products that you make, right? Like you have games that could be out in the market making, you know, in revenue in six months versus other ones that may not make it out for three years. So I think that one, um, you know, that one blanket comment about whether or not, you know, you need to match a hurdle rate at a particular time, you know, as you said, it could be years before you actually see what the effective decisions are right now. And, you know, the environment of then is most likely going to be a fair bit different from the environment of today. So um, I actually like Aaron's approach of just set a high bar and you're fine. It doesn't matter, you know, where things are going with the hurdle rates down the road. Um, but uh, in regard, you know, in regards to the, uh, the, the no new IP, um, I think people are looking at, uh, you know, the cost of acquisition of, of people and what are the things that are able to um, stand out? You know, to, said earlier, you made the, the, the question of, you know, are we competing against, um, you know, the latest uh, episodes on Netflix uh, and not just amongst our, ourselves? 
Um, absolutely. And I think it's a case of, you know, you're going to see less IP, uh, original IP, unless people feel like it actually can be a large launch where people feel good about, yes, I am going to be able to get to that 5 million uh, unit sellers. Um, if not, then they are going to go with the, the tried and true, um, you know, IPs of Marvel, Star Wars. Um, I know you want to put Avatar in there, but I'm a little, uh, we'll <laughs> see fair. if Avatar actually makes it uh, that, that big of an impact inside the games world. Um, but yeah, and, and I think you are going to see uh, a reduction in number of games, uh, original IP. It also is the, the time of uh, where you are inside the, the cycles for the console launches. Like you'll often see a lot of new IP happen uh, at the beginning because you have that opportunity to, to show new things, try new things with a console uh, versus near the end uh, of the lifespan. And, um, you know, believe it or not, even though, you know, people are finally just being able to say, hey, I can actually get a PlayStation 5. Uh, we're a number of years into that console cycle. And, you know, we are going to start seeing people move towards, um, you know, right now sort of solidifying the audience that you have inside the console. And then some people looking at, well, here are our next consoles coming up and let's, We'll, we'll start looking at some of the new things for those consoles when they come around. And yeah, wow, I think a lot of the, ramble that just covered a whole bunch of different things. Uh, no, it's good. It's kind of a hard topic to address just because it is so context dependent and so time dependent too. Um, and I think, again, kind of like the earlier stage you are, um, the more like beating a hurdle rate is just about like picking the right horse and like a company that can succeed, a game that can succeed. Um, but it is different, you know, in public markets or just more open markets. It's more about like being right about what's underestimated instead of just being right <laughs> in general. And so like as a like an investor looking at companies is even different from being inside of a company and how you think about hurdle rates of like internal projects. But maybe maybe to close this, I kind of want to throw this back to, to you, Seb, as you've been thinking about this, maybe as you look even like more broadly in the industry. Um, and just like some of the big companies, like where, like, are there zones that you see where you think the hurdle rates can be beaten versus like those that maybe will, will struggle? Like where, where are we right now in your mind where like those smarter or dumb bets can be made? Well, Monopoly Go is great. Highly recommend that game if you haven't <laughs> played it already. Uh, it's, it's a hard question. I mean, certainly, I think what Dave said hits on the head, which is, are you working on distribution right now? Are you thinking about user acquisition? Are you trying to figure out new ways to buy them? I, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, a, a new PM at one of the major publishers. And the point that that person made was that a lot of their bosses came from the more machine zone era of user acquisition, where it's less care about the actual numbers and more analysis of the CAC LTV curves. It's certainly the case that we're going to be pushing towards away from that for the time being. And that's probably where a lot of the value is coming from. I'm obviously super bullish on any new technology that could theoretically solve a core problem, right? AI is interesting because it could solve a lot of the live ops costs, right? You can reduce costs, therefore increase your profits into the game. The, there are other ecosystems that allow you to like take advantage of more whales. It allows you to take advantage of the more the players are coming through. Uh, better access to hardware might be that as well. I think the honest answer, though, to your point, is no one really knows. I think that makes for a really fun time to be making games because we just don't know. 
one thing that I will say, and I think this is a common observer issue, not necessarily this podcast audience, but in general, the the hurdle rate is something that you do have to care about as a um, operator, just as much as if you are an investor. And I think that's something that's really important to talk about. If you think about proletariat, uh, who were acquired by Blizzard last year, or maybe two years ago now, their game, Spellbreak, or I won't say it was Spellbreak. I think it was Spellbreak. Anyway, their game was awesome. Like, I really, really enjoyed that game. And I think a lot of people did too. It was super highly rated. It had a pretty large community of competitive gamers going through it. It felt like old school Unreal. Unfortunately, for them to run their live op servers for that game, it's just incredibly cost prohibitive. And as a result, they couldn't run the game even though it was successful by any reasonable measure of game success, with the exception of being incredibly profitable. And so especially when we think about new business models in the gaming, I think that's something that comes up over and over again. It's like, hey, let's unfortunately, and, and you know, this is a conversation, not to belabor this point, but this is a conversation I have with a good colleague of mine who always asks, how do people make business-first games, right? Like in his world, games are a piece of art that need to be made in that mechanism, but how do you make something that's respectful of the business of the thing as opposed to hoping to fall into it? And that's just, just as hard, I say. I tell him it's just as hard to make a game from that direction as it is from the other direction. Well, on the topic of new business models and uh, big old risks, Apple's new AR vision, uh, uh, on top of you know Quest 3 and other things that have been announced recently. Absolutely. Uh, it was a really fun announcement for me. So um, I spent some, some interesting time uh, in the world of making theme park rides uh, with VR and AR as the, the main method of uh, experiencing those attractions. So really got an opportunity to look at the, the high end of VR and AR entertainment. Um, and I've been really interested in seeing the different takes and different viewpoints in terms of how do we actually get these types of experiences down to the consumer level. So um, you know, there certainly has been a number of different approaches and different attempts. Um, if you look at, uh, as an example, Xreal, formerly known as Nreal, um, with their glasses, which are basically a monitor extension, you know, that gives you a an, an AR light approach to the world in that you've got, uh, you know, a monitor floating in front of your face. Um, through to, which for me is set the new bar, is the, the Apple Vision Pro. Um, because you are able to take advantage of so many components of um, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, extended reality, mixed reality, however you want to refer to it, um, and, and really put it into an ideal package, or at least for me as, a, as an experienced creator, um, because it gives you so much uh, flexibility in terms of the types of experiences you're giving to the, to the user. So if you're to look at um, the comparison, you know, you've got, X real on sort of the low end of you know entry coming into the world of uh, AR um, Quest three I would put in the middle uh, and then the the Apple Vision Pro uh, on the other end uh, Quest three for me I mean I I very much enjoy playing on on Quest two um, you know certainly a, a lot of games have uh, been a blast for myself to play for my kids to play. Um, and you really do get a, a good sense on a consumer level of immersion. Obviously, you're not getting the same levels where you can on the high end where you've got things like 
fans coming in, giving you, you know, uh, when you're at hair uh, or being on a motion base to really help sell the, the full feeling of what you're uh, trying to experience that, in that type of immersive experience. But, um, you know, it, it did a, a decent job. And I think the Quest 3 is certainly going to help with that. From a mechanical perspective, you know, it's going to be a lighter, uh, a lighter piece, meaning that, um, you know, the, the, the head fatigue is certainly a real thing when using VR and AR headsets. Um, you know, obviously that'll be a bit nicer. Um, I do wish that basically all VR and AR headsets had the option of putting a battery on the back because being able to balance the weight helps so much when it comes to, to head fatigue. Um, and I think, you know, the Quest 3 is an improvement of what it's doing and their, their pass-through technology, meaning that being able to see the world outside of your VR headsets can be a lot better and that it's uh, it's going to be full color as compared to the monochromatic that it is uh, with Quest 2 right now. Um, but I think what Apple has done uh, is really, really... I hate using this phrase, but I can use it anyways. They've really taken it to the next level in that um, it is a truly fully integrated experience in, in what they're showing. I mean, obviously, when we start seeing more third-party applications inside there, there's going to be a little bit of a difference. And what I mean by that is if you look at the software experience for Xreal, um, you, you've got different companies have put in different uh, types of experiences and it's not necessarily a common UI. It's not a, uh, it's not a, a common interface. It's not like a common experience. Um, the quest uh, I think does a pretty good job of that overall in terms of menu usage, you know, um, being able to move now with uh, actual doing some basic hand tracking. Um, but, you know, Apple looking at trying to create that overall experience where everything is as immersive uh, and, and unified in experience as they possibly can. Um, what I was saying before about, uh, for me, is the best type of experience between VR and AR, you know, real mixed reality is that because you have full control of what people are seeing, you're able to add in effects that really help either ground a person inside their, their experience, meaning that you have less opportunities or less chances that people are going to be motion sick from not having a, a good understanding of what's, you know, where they are inside the world and how they're moving inside that world. Um, and and the, the fidelity of the imagery inside there, you know, they're going for basically the equivalent of a 4K screen in front of each eye. Um, but being able to control everything from how much light is coming into that scene. So, you know, that transition from a real world visual to going into a game or going into, you know, watching uh, Disney plus as I guess is the example during the, during the show, um, you know, being able to change, change that into the feeling that you're actually inside of a movie theater or an incredible environment. Uh, I think it's going to be a fantastic job for, um, you know, being able to really immerse players or you know users inside that experience from a game perspective i think is going to be an interesting one you know it's not coming with um you know the same types of controllers that you see inside the quest so you know they say hey just bluetooth in a, a controller and you'll be fine um that's not the same level of immersion you know that that's an input um uh, mismatch in my mind 
and that you're not really able to take full advantage of the fact that you're inside of an immersive environment. So having controllers that allow you to have uh, immersive um, inputs, I think, is, is going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, I don't know how many people have tried a lot of hand controls inside Quest 2. Yeah, it's a little hit and miss. Now, I know that um, you know Apple's really uh, going all in in terms of the number of sensors that they've got, the number of cameras going. So I do expect it to be a better experience than there. But you know, if you've tried typing with your hands in the middle of the air, it's nowhere near as enjoyable. It's a lot more tiring than if you're actually having your hands on type of the keyboard. So I think there's, you know, there's also going to be some of that experimentation of how well it's going to be working. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that they're going to have a uh, hundred, you know, arcade Apple Arcade games available uh, right from the beginning. Um, but uh, the other part that was interesting for me is actually how they presented that. You know, if you're seeing a video of Quest, then you know, even if it's something as simple as Beat Saber. All the marketing for that, you are in the experience. You are there, you know, you're swinging the, the lightsabers around. You are actually in it. Apple's presentation of it was entirely a game. You know, it's as if you're sitting on a couch just playing on a TV. You know, you had a controller. You just had a flat screen sitting in front of you. It's not the immersive experience from the gameplay perspective that I think you'd you know, want to be really enticing people to go through and, and pick that up because, you know, it, that's an experience I can already have with a PlayStation, an Xbox, you know, even uh, Apple Arcade through uh, Apple TV right now. Why am I going to spend, you know, $3,500 US on, uh, on something that really only just duplicates an experience? I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. I mean, I, I, I like it, but I also, I do like the positioning for it they're not trying to be that $500 experience where everyone wants to go and buy it. They're like, look, this is, we're still trying to find that killer app for it. And I don't think they there. I think they've come forward a lot in terms of the experiences a lot better, but I don't know that they have that killer use case yet for why everyone's going to go out and buy it. Yeah. Um, I'll give my quick take. I want to make sure we have a chance to hit on maybe one more topic before we wrap up too. But, um, Matthew Ball recently put out a really great um, essay called Big Tech's Biggest Bets or What It Takes to Build a Billion User Platform. And, and you know, one main motif across that, that, that great essay was just that in order to build a new platform in general, no matter like really what you're doing these days, it's going to cost you many, many, many tens of billions of dollars. And there's just so few companies in the world that can really pull it off. And even if you spend that much money, there still are other strategic considerations, timing considerations, pricing considerations, et cetera, that if you're wrong on any one of those, it could just throw, <laughs> throw you completely off. Um, and so when I look at this general space of, of like AR, VR, XR, whatever we're going to end up really calling it, spatial computing, um, I, th- I think that in terms of like really being able to build new platforms, there's just so few companies that are really going to be able to, to pull it off. And um, really, it is only the Apples and maybe the Metas that will be able to do so in a big, big way, in my opinion. And we'll start to see the, the what those the X-Real or whatever, and a bunch of those other Magic Leap, HoloLens, a bunch of those other projects are probably not really going to to stick around and with something like 
the Apple Vision Pro, it's probably going to be more enterprise first for a while, I would guess, just kind of given the price point. And it's not none, it's not going to be gaming centric. It's going to take a while for this to even like build out and scale. Um, but it was really exciting to see the technology. I think it's really cool. And I think that we absolutely will see more use cases get developed, especially as developers start to get their their hands on it. But yeah, I'm also just as excited about the MetaQuest 3, honestly, just because as we saw with the iPhone and other Apple products, the high end can be an amazing place to be. You can mint a lot of money, but there still are billions of billions of people in the world that are not going to be able to have that product, but still want access to that technology in some way. And being able to create lower tier versions, the the so-called like Android version of whatever this new technology is going to be, I think is a massive opportunity that someone like Meta probably can step into. And something like gaming, it seems, is going to be a bigger part of their their process of of getting to that point, at least in the next few years. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm super bullish on the space. I suspect gaming will become a bigger piece of this over the long term, but there still is a lot more to figure out before before we get there. Yeah. Um, very quickly, I think one of the reasons why I think Apple's launch was generally well received is they have a really good understanding that hardware by itself doesn't sell hardware. You need the software side of things. You need the experiences to help sell the hardware. So if you go to a CES and you go through and you test out, you know, here are the latest and greatest headsets from all the various you know, uh, companies coming in. They might have great tech, but I hate to say it, 99% of the stuff you look at, to not put it mildly, it looks like garbage. Like they just, they, they've got really great tech, but then a horrible software experience to help sell that, that tech. And I think Apple is, you know, as you said, you need to have enough money, not only just to build the hardware, but you need the software, you need the the user experience side of things, you need all the supporting software to help be able to sell the vision effectively. Because if you've just got great hardware, most people aren't going to be able to you know follow your vision. You have to actually have it inside their hands and they have to feel it and they have to see it and they go, okay, yeah, this is a compelling experience for me. Um, and I do think that's where Apple will definitely be able to succeed or have a better chance of success than others. They just have to see if they can get a better uh, long-term adoption rate than Quest has seen or the other VR headsets when you know most people play them for a couple of weeks and then put them aside. Well, the great thing about the topic is, of course, like we're just the the beginning of it, right? Like this was just the announcement. Like uh, there's plenty of information still yet to be had. It's not really out of the market yet. We really haven't seen what they're doing with gaming. So I imagine we'll be revisiting this as soon as like there's more cool stuff to talk about in it. And, you know, the, you know, one of the Quest 3 launches and stuff like that. So I think a lot of great like discussion, I think, to look forward to on this. We're just kind of like tip of the iceberg this time uh we do just maybe have barely enough time here to just touch on one last topic as well uh which is just kind of an interesting topical one around reddit uh a bit of a blackout protest kind of thing going on uh kind of protesting uh, some some charges they want to do on their, their api yes yeah, so, i mean the interesting thing here is just it's a timely thing reddit had a change to their api this is going to happen a lot more often in the near term future there's a lot of services that were historically used um, for free for user acquisition, something we see in gaming all the time. Now it's they need to monetize. Honestly, it's probably more of a function of people using uh, Reddit to train LLMs. They want to like target them. Anyway, the cause aside, 
fun thing here. They implemented a new change. There is a boycott. Those were 48 hours. They blacked out a bunch of subreddits. It was a very surreal experience if you've used Reddit or whatnot. And on the gaming tint, which I think is interesting, is typically speaking, when we have these types of gaming backlashes, the industry, <laughs> industry advice is just ignore them. And it's just like, look, they'll either play your game or they won't. Just ignore it. We'll come back and we'll, we'll solve this. And it historically has worked. And that seems to be what Reddit's doing. But I wanted to ask the group and just you know toss it out there. Hey, what is actually the solution here? Like, is there a solution for on the user side to do these types of protests? And on the developer side, it coincided with the 93 week. Was that a concern? They did not get this type of stuff they wanted. They didn't get the type of press they wanted. Reddit is still a great driver of user acquisition. How is that going to work out? Just some food for thought. But I would also love Dave or Aaron's thoughts as well. I think the problem is that Reddit's just not a good business. And so how they they operate right now, especially since I think they're rumored gearing up to go public, they like really need to get their house in order, um, just financially, revenue stream-wise, um, competitive advantage-wise, to not get wrecked in, in public markets, to be, to be frank. And so that pushes a management team to become even more strict about pulling the levers that um, ensure that they better control the experience and therefore can better control the monetization on that experience. And through doing that, there's a lot of tension. And that's not Reddit specific. We also saw that even just in the past couple of weeks with Twitch too, right? Like them um, also having struggled to be like a like a strongly growing and profitable company. And so what do they do? They they clamp down on what creators can do to try to become more of a middleman and you know benefit um, from that. And typically when you see um, these platforms take more strict approaches, it, it's going to have creator backlash. And in a lot of sense, it should because the creators are what make the the platforms viable. And in the case of Reddit, also like the development community around it has improved <laughs> the experience and been like a source of innovation in a lot of ways for everyone's experience of Reddit. Um, but in terms of like what a solution actually should be, honestly, the best that I can think of is like Google should buy <laughs> should buy Reddit and that'll eliminate a bunch of concerns. I don't know if that would even be allowed by regulators or if Alphabet, Google would even necessarily want to spend money on that. But we had I Google think, groups before, so I don't know if it would really be all that different. Well, I think that it just let Reddit be Reddit um, and not make them force such a strong hand and then benefit from the strong engagement that exists on Reddit through data you have exclusively for your own LLMs like Bard or whatever. Um, and being able to like make Reddit part of a larger ecosystem that is more connected to what the future is going to be and how people are going to search and find, create content. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know if that'll happen though, but from a user standpoint, I honestly doubt much is going to change. There isn't really a good replacement to Reddit. So people will come back. It'll still it'll still be Reddit. Um, and we saw that even with Twitch. People didn't like Twitch. Some people went elsewhere, but that didn't really work for the most part. They're back to Twitch. And I think that's just the nature of, of network effects. Um, but those are my two cents. Yeah, I mean... Um... Not really much more to cover there. I mean, I think you've covered a lot of it, Aaron. From my perspective, you know, it is definitely one of the challenges of that business model that was really popular in terms of the first thing you do is just get a whole bunch of eyeballs. 
And then once you've got a whole bunch of eyeballs, then you figure out how to monetize. Um, you know, Reddit's not the only company that has to figure out how they're going to do that. Um, and they're just having the same level of uh, challenges as, as other companies have had when they needed to make that transition. Um, for me personally, I mean, I really do like Reddit as a platform in terms of being able to see uh, people's thoughts on games. Um, you know, obviously you need to have a pretty good filter and being able to determine, well, what is the, what is the, the garbage noise on there versus the, what are the actual real feelings of the players? Um, you know, you do have that opportunity to have that conversation with, with a, a wide range of uh, players as well. Um, so I do like it as a platform from the, from the game perspective. Um, but I agree. I think people will just will come back to, to Reddit. I don't see it necessarily uh, going away uh, or, or large groups of people moving off to other platforms. I mean, it's one of the things that people have spent a long time on the platform. They've created communities. They've got relationships there. Those are the things that are really hard to move to a different platform because it's not just you going from one platform to another platform. It's how are you going to actually be able to remove, how are you going to move any sort of relationships and, and friendships and, and that uh, along with you? Final thoughts, Ed? Yeah, Aaron, I think, said it best. And it's something that my co-founder, Tal Shahar, says, says all the time, which is that good businesses makes dumb people look smart and bad businesses make smart people look dumb. And it's always really fun as we talk through all our businesses and it seems like a really nice way to almost like end the podcast because that's been the core theme of this episode. It's like, hey, like, are the Embracer guys smart or dumb? I think it just depends on how good the business is. Are the are the folks on the Apple side with their headsets smart or dumb? It depends on how good their business is. And so it is a it's almost a truism about how relevant it is in terms of what we're gonna see of Reddit and what we're gonna see of all these other platforms, be it Twitch or any of the other interesting pseudo-social ecosystems out there. Yeah, Warren Buffett had a great quote. When a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, it is the reputation of the business that remains intact. Um, and so that's just kind of the the reality of of business sometimes. But um, hopefully, hopefully these companies that are you know going through struggles, they can still find some stroke of brilliance to change the economics of, of their business and come out stronger on the other end. Well, the great thing about this being weekly, of course, is we'll, we will get a chance potentially to see how this goes over the long term and uh, and revisit these predictions later on. But of course, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how everything goes because, you know, as you guys mentioned during the hurdle stuff, there's a lot of variables, a lot of unknowns in the future, but uh, we definitely look forward to seeing how those go. And uh, I want to thank, uh, of course, all of you guys for the excellent conversations. But I especially want to thank any of the listeners who made it through 100 episodes all the way to this one, uh, you know, Pat yourself on the back, I guess, uh, on our behalf for you. Uh, really big, huge thanks for all the support for everyone who listens to this podcast, whether this is your first one, your hundredth one, whatever it is. Uh, we all really appreciate it very much. Uh, and, you know, being having you as part of the uh, the Novik family, essentially. Of course, uh, as usual, I want to tag out the uh, the email address for the mailbag with the podcast at novik.co. You know, make sure to send your feedback. Heck, if it's just, uh, hey, I, I listened to a hundred episodes and, and I loved it. Like, thanks for doing this awesome stuff like that is is fantastic to hear but uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you all next week as well with another group of panelists and more excellent topics as always but in the meantime enjoy your weekend if you enjoyed today's episode whether on youtube or your favorite podcast app make sure to like subscribe comment or give a five-star review 
And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.